morning, and uh, thank you so much for uh, your welcome to us and our family, and uh, we definitely love being at Canaan Baptist Church, and we got into town Thursday night, uh, pretty late, about 10.30, and uh, we're able to spend Friday with the young people at an all-nighter and uh, down in uh, Albany, and um, it was an experience for sure, and uh, we didn't stay the whole night uh, for a lot of reasons, but uh, I know the young people did, and it was just kind of fun, just kind of fun to be there, fun to watch the teens and young people do their thing, and uh, then we spent yesterday trying to recover uh, from that all-nighter uh, that, that happened on Friday night, and, and uh, then found out uh, that your preacher was sick, and I was looking forward to hearing him, but I guess it is how it is. Um, I've known the Ingrams, my wife and I have known the Ingrams for over 20 years. I remember the first time meeting the Ingrams, they were, uh, they'd come by our church, they were in a transition in their lives, and so they ended up at Falls Baptist Church, and I met them in the church office. We were a lot younger back in the day, and I uh, had no, no, um, I'd never met them before, so they were standing there in our lobby, waiting to meet with Pastor Van Gelderen, and I shook their hands, and and uh, that really did begin a, a long-term friendship. We've been very close to the Ingrams for a, quite a while, uh, really in a certain sense ever since that day. I've uh, really been close to them. And uh, for about 13 years, I had the privilege of being the youth pastor at Falls Baptist Church. And uh, do, I do not serve in that capacity anymore, but I did uh, in, in uh, my younger years. And uh, Brother Ingram had some pretty key moments, was a huge help to my youth group. And uh, he was in and out for a while, traveled with the Minutemen Ministries, and then was out on evangelism. And, but at some key points, he came back and uh, helped preach to our teens. And uh, I can remember there were some moments when, literally, uh, God came down. And it really happened because of the ministry of Pastor Ingram. We were at a school camp. This is years ago. This is probably almost 20 years ago. We were at a school camp at a camp nearby our church called Camp Joy. And uh, Brother Ingram was the guest speaker. I was youth pastor, still pretty green in my role. And he was actually uh, still kind of launching and, and uh, developing into the ministry God was leading him to. And uh, he preached for our teens for about three days there at that camp, our, 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 our high schoolers. And he preached a message on hell. And uh, I, I don't remember the whole substance of the message. I just remember the theme. He preached on hell. And uh, there was a moment where it was literally like the heavens parted and God came down. And uh, to be honest with you, I think back in those days, uh, that day, and I think, wow, I wish I would have seized that moment different. But as youth pastor, I didn't even, honestly, I didn't even know what was happening. It was like God came down and we didn't know what to do. And uh, boy, if I could do it over again, I probably would have done it a little bit different. But I remember uh, praying and ending that service and sensing God was working. A few years later, we took a, uh, a youth group trip down to New Mexico. And uh, the Ingrams joined us. That was at the time they were traveling with the Minutemen Ministries. And so they joined us, and we did some teen outreach. And, and uh, while we were along with the... Um, um, sorry, this is Colorado. We were in Colorado. And uh, there was a moment there as we were trusting the Lord to do a breakthrough in that community. We were trying to reach teenagers. And uh, God had done a work in Brother Ingram's life that day. That, and when he stepped up to preach, our, he wasn't even preaching. He was just going to lead us in prayer. That just like I described before, it was like the heavens opened. 
and God came down. And uh, for about three hours, we, we entered into a prayer time that was not exact. We were planning to pray. We weren't planning to pray like that. And uh, it was like we could touch the throne. And uh, really, I've thought more than just those are two stories, but many times where God has used the preaching of Brother Ingram to usher us into the throne room. And I appreciate him. I wish he was here. Like I'm saying, I wanted to hear him preach. <laughs> but uh, we got to hear him preach at the youth activity on, on Friday. It was good. The Lord used it. I think the Lord used it in the teens here, used it in the teens uh, that were there uh, visiting. And uh, it was definitely, definitely a blessing. Well, I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Esther. If you could, find the book of Esther. I am a dispensationalist. And uh, hopefully you understand what a dispensationalist is. I don't know if you've talked about it much. Maybe you have. Uh, remember the first time I heard the word dispensationalist, having never heard the word before, that was, a, that was a pretty big word. I didn't even know what it meant when I first heard it. It wasn't self-defining. And uh, somebody helped me then to understand that it has to do with how God deals uh, with his plan over the course of time. And uh, there are actually different ways that God has worked over the history of, of our world. And uh, it's all part of how God works. And he has different dispensations of how he's worked in his plan unfolding. And uh, part of being a dispensationalist, not to, not to lose you in the weeds here, but part of being a dispensationalist is recognizing the difference between how God's working in national Israel and how God's working in this age in the church. And uh, there is a difference in his working, and that is God is working in this dispensation primarily or essentially through the local church. And so what's happening at Canaan Baptist Church isn't an aside in this day. It's the main thing. This is how God works. He's working in local churches, and he's working in local churches around the world, and that's how God works. Uh, a predominant feature of this age is that by and large, the church, the local churches that God's working in, are primarily Gentile. And uh, you might be uh, Jewish, maybe you're fully Jewish or partly Jewish, but my guess is most of us here would be predominantly non-Jewish in our ethnic background. Okay, Probably, maybe if you have some uh, Jew, uh, Jewishness in you, probably you're mostly non-Jew, okay? Does that make sense? Gentile. And uh, mostly the church in this age is Gentile in its makeup, and uh, that's just how God's working in this age. But being a dispensationalist means you recognize that the Bible needs to be taken literally, and the Bible literally says God has a continuing plan for the nation of Israel. And it's easier for us to see this today than it might have been even a hundred years ago. Um, you know, a lot of theologians over the centuries have tried to maybe write the Jewish people out of God's plan for the coming ages. But if you're going to read the Bible literally for what it says in a lot of different places, national Israel is still a very important part of God's plan, and in a certain point is going to once again become central to what God's doing in the ages to come. So right now, Israel is, in a sense, set aside. Now, it's not that God's not working them, uh, but God is working principally through the church. 
like Canaan Baptist Church. Local churches is how God's working. But, you know, I think you can see, as well as I can see, that the nation of Israel has once again become a very uh, um, uh, key part of what's happening in our, in our day. Uh, you think about the nation of Israel today. Uh, uh, there is an actual country called Israel, and uh, they are self-governing. Uh, they are their own people, once again. And the Jewish people around the world are continually gravitating back to this land. Uh, Palestine is what it's sometimes called, uh, the land of Israel. It's a, just a remarkable thing to watch. And uh, maybe you pay attention to Israel. It's worth paying attention to the recent elections where uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was able to, to um, re uh, uh, what's the word, collate uh, the government under his leadership. Just intriguing. Uh, Israel is an intriguing study. And uh, what, what all is going to happen in the days ahead in Israel, I don't know. Uh, but it is always a very interesting study. Um, some of us are going to Israel in a couple of months, right? Are you guys going? You still planning on it? Amen. Yep, I'm going again. I've been to Israel four times. This will be my fifth time, and I'm glad this time I get to go with my wife again. And she went with me one other time in the past, and I'm glad to go with her again. It's always a blessing to travel with, uh, with your wife. At least it's a blessing for me to travel with my wife. So. But I've been to Israel a number of times, and every time it's a little bit different. And uh, someday maybe you'll get to go. I think I talked about Israel last time I was here. But uh, there's something about it, just going to the land, uh, that land of Israel, especially the city of Jerusalem. It is truly the city where God put his name there. And it's just special. I think it was maybe two times ago that I was there. One of our times, we always go to the Golan Heights. You've heard of the Golan Heights? And it's always a controversial place. I think it was President Trump that finally recognized as Americans that the Golan Heights is not just occupied territory, it's actually part of political Israel. And it has been for years, but uh, for whatever reason, the international community has kind of rejected it being Israel. They call it uh, occupied territory, but President Trump called it actual Israel. And uh, I would agree with that. I think the Golan Heights is part of Israel's territory. Uh, you might be familiar a little bit with the history of Israel. In 1973, there was a war that's called the uh, Yom Kippur War. Are you familiar with that? The Yom Kippur War. And uh, I bet you can guess why it's called the Yom Kippur War. That's hard to say. Yom Kippur War. You know why it's called that? Because it was fought over Yom Kippur, or at least it was initiated on the Day of Atonement. Um, in 1973, Yom Kippur, uh, there was a tank battle that happened in the Golan Heights. And uh, from my reading of it, arguably it was one of the top five greatest uh, armored battles of all time. And uh, we were up in the Golan, and uh, we were recognizing this battle, and our guide was explaining to us uh, some aspects of it. In fact, we watched a film about this, uh, this Yom Kippur war and the tank battle that happened right there in the Golan. And uh, I, don't, I couldn't give you all the details about it, um, but uh, that particular tank battle, the Israelis were outnumbered by the Syrians something like 10 to 1. I think the Israelis had around 170 tanks, give or take. The Syrians had over 1,400 tanks. What is that, like 9 to 1? Uh, the odds were absolutely impossible. Beyond that, the Israeli uh, military had tanks from World War II, that they had modernized 
But the Syrians had modern Russian tanks. And so even the equipment difference, there was no comparison. The, the armored equipment that the Syrian troops had uh, far excelled that of the Israelis. The Israelis had pretty old tanks that had been modernized. The uh, Syrians had modern tanks. One of the greatest difference between those two, uh, between uh, the two sides, is the Syrians had a very new technology, at least it was new at the time, and that was night vision. So they had the ability to see the battlefield day and night. The Israelis did not. Though the Israelis had the high place, the Syrians had a technical advantage over the Israelis. The Syrians had a technical advantage over the Israelis. And uh, they initiated the, um, the, the war, actually on all three sides, uh, Jordan from the east, Egypt from the south, and then uh, Syria from the north, all descended upon Israel on Yom Kippur, 1973. Yom Kippur is the holiest day uh, in the calendar of the Jewish people, uh, the Day of Atonement. And so most Israelis were with their families. They were celebrating this, this high uh, holiday. And at that point, really at the weakest time of the Israeli people, uh, from all three sides, the enemies uh, came upon them. And uh, humanly speaking, they were done for. Uh, those 170 tanks on the Golan did their very best to defend against the Syrian forces that were coming upon them. But I mentioned already the Syrians had night vision. So the Syrians could plot every single one of those tanks, whether it was day or night, and the Israelis could only dial in to fire on the Syrians after they fired. And I've never been in a tank battle, maybe you have, uh, it doesn't sound like anything is on my bucket list. In fact, it might be the bucket thing. I don't plan to be in a tank battle. Um, but I understand when a tank fires, you would see the, you know, the explosion. And so the only way the Israelis were able to dial in where to fire was when the Syrians would fire. And uh, so you can just imagine this battle it went on for a couple of days as they were fighting. And the Israeli tanks were just getting one by one, disabled, taken down, to the place where I believe at the end of about two days, uh, I'm sorry, on the third day, the Israelis were down to six tanks remaining. And uh, the Syrians were still uh, very much uh, coming upon them, uh, had the upper hand, and only six tanks remaining. And uh, at that point, the Syrians had essentially taken the day. They had won the battle. Um, well, through the course of those days, there was a, a small group of tanks that were able to mobilize and get up there to help defend, uh, to reinforce the Israeli tanks. It was a reinforcement of 15 more tanks. And uh, so while this battle has been now multiple days happening, there's six tanks remaining on the Israeli side. Fifteen other Israeli tanks come. And uh, this is almost like reading a Bible story. When those 15 tanks came, the Assyrian uh, army assumed that that was only the beginning of many, many more tanks, and Syria retreated. They literally, within moments of seizing the Golan, taking it over, and when those reinforcements of 15 tanks came, the hundreds of Syrian tanks turned and left. And uh, it was really a very interesting uh, study, and I haven't read about it more than just we watched a film. I've seen the battlefield a couple of times. You can still see tanks that have been left on the field kind of to commemorate the battle, you know, tanks that have been destroyed through the battle. And uh, boy, I'm telling you, you watch that, uh, that film, you think about what happened that day, and you can't miss the fact 
God did that. That is a miracle. It is a total miracle how God did it. Now, you might know this, and this is not to pick on our Jewish friends, but I would say, you know, kind of across the board, by and large, a lot of our Jewish friends would be practically or even professing atheists. Do you realize that? A lot of our Jewish friends are atheists. And I'm not saying they all are, but I'm saying many of them are. They would actually deny the existence of God. And in a lot of ways they do because they have endured so much evil in their years that it's hard for them to recognize God because of the evil they've suffered. I was at a Jewish museum in Milwaukee. The guide was working our way through it. And I don't remember how I asked him, but I made a comment, you know, do you believe in God? Do you believe in God? And he looked at me. I mean, just with this hard face. And he said, how could there be a God when you look at what's happened in our world? I thought, wow. And what's amazing about that is that is how so many of our Jewish friends think. And yet I'm looking at this tank battle and the impossible odds, and I'm thinking, how do you explain this except to say, look what God did. And I don't have time or the ability right now to go through the history of Israel to show time after time after time, I'm talking modern Israel, where the only explanation is God. Well, here we are looking at the book of Esther. And uh, Esther is dealing with a time in Israel's history that is, that's been repeated over and over and over again. And that is, there was an attempt to exterminate the people of God. And in the story of Esther, there is a well-developed plan by one man in particular, but he's working it out through his political power to try and literally exterminate the nation of Israel. And uh, you know the book of Esther probably, even if you're not super familiar with it. Uh, the book of Esther is a tale then of how God works through the affairs of man to not just protect the people of God, but to literally turn what could be their extermination into a great victory. And let's talk about it here. Um, think in your own life about different chance moments that have happened to you. Uh, you were just doing what you do, and something happened to you by chance. And that chance moment changed your life. I want you to think about it. Can you think of a moment in your life where something happened by chance that in very fact changed your life? You probably can think of a moment like that. Now, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, so you're a child of God, it's easy for you maybe now to look at that chance moment and say, well, that wasn't just a chance moment, that was a God moment. But you know, there's a lot of people that just move their way through life and chance happens upon them and that chance even alters their future and they see it as chance. And you know, our friends in Israel, our, our, our Jewish friends, many of them view their life that way. Like it's just a series of chance moments. And uh, there's a chance moment that happens in the book of Esther, actually a few of them, and I want to talk about it here. And uh, let's talk about the chance, or how God is working even through chance moments. Um, uh, Esther actually does show very much all the way through the evidence of God's providential hand. Let's kind of flip our way through it as we talk about this here. Uh, chapter number one tells the story of the, uh, the former queen, at least and when the story begins, she is the queen. Uh, she gets removed from her position, and her name is Vashti. And uh, Vashti is 
asked to do something that she doesn't want to do. It's in the context of a drunken party and the king, her husband, asks her to do something that she says, I'm not going to do it. And I don't fully understand all of what it was. Maybe it's a little cryptic in the text, but whatever it was, Vashti basically says to her husband and all the key leaders of the, of the nation at that point, no, I'm not going to do it. And because of that, because of her choosing not to, and I think probably in her virtue chose not to, um, she gets removed. So chapter 1 begins with the removal of Vashti as queen. This is important, and you probably know this if you've read the book of Esther. That's an important moment because it's that moment that opens the way for the name, uh, the, the character who, who the book is named after, and that's Esther. So look at chapter number 2. Um, Esther then is, is uh, introduced to us in chapter 2, and, and uh, through the course of events, uh, she ends up being um, a part of this, uh, this contest to become who the next queen would be. In verse number 17, it says that the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he, the king, set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So chapter 1, Vashti is removed. Chapter 2, Esther becomes queen. And the remarkable feature about Esther is she's Jewish. So here now this Jewish girl marries this uh, Persian king and becomes the queen of the dominated world at that point. She's the queen to the king. Um, verse 23 then ends with a little bit of a story told. And uh, chapter 2, verse 23, it says this. Uh, maybe I'll go to verse 21. It says, In those days, while Mordecai sat on the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Bigthan and Tirish, uh, of those which kept the door, were wroth and sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen, and Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name, and when the inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. So just a little bit of fore, uh, what's the word? Foreshadowing, right? Foreshadowing. It's going to come later in the story. Uh, chapter 3. Uh, in chapter 3, you have then the beginning of the interaction of Haman with um, Mordecai, and uh, Haman is not liking how Mordecai is responding to him. Feels like Mordecai is being disrespectful. Maybe he is being. Uh, Mordecai is not recognizing Haman's position. He's not bowing to him. And uh, Haman uh, is enraged by this, and you know what he's trying to do now. He wants to not just destroy Mordecai. He wants to destroy Mordecai's people. And uh, there's something that happens in chapter 3 that you've got to see because it does define what's going on in the book, and that's verse number 7. Okay, so look at chapter 3 and verse 7. Mordecai, uh, Haman has this idea. Uh, what he wants to do is he wants to extinguish the people of Mordecai. And so in verse number 7, in the first month, that is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, the lot, before Haman from day to day. And from month to month to the twelfth month, that is the month Adar, Adar. And uh, Haman has this plan and uh, wants to see the people killed. Uh, but the lot, or the, the poor is cast so that the plan of Haman will take place 12 months later. 
And uh, maybe it's hard to see in the text. It does talk about 12 months. This is really important. The casting of poor was, um, in, in, in the, and from the standpoint of a guy like Haman, was partly occultic. It was very spiritual. They're looking for intervention from the spirits uh, to guide in what they're doing. So it's superstitious. So they're casting lots. They're casting poor. Not to find out what uh, the one true God of heaven would have them do, but what, what would be the thing that they should do more from an occultic standpoint. So the casting poor, and the poor happens that what's going to transpire with the nation of Israel will happen in 12 months from then. And uh, the, the, the greatest amount of time it could have been is how much time was given. And that's important because it gives time uh, for the story to develop. Um, Esther chapter 5. We're going to skip over 4 for the moment, but in Esther chapter 5, um, verse number 2, it says, um, And so it was when the king saw Esther the queen standing in the court that she obtained favor in his sight, and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter. Esther has been now given the commission to go and appeal for her people to the king, and the way it was set up was you don't just walk into the throne room. This would be no different today. You're not just going to walk into the Oval Office. Uh, you'd have to be invited, vetted, uh, all the background checks on you before you just walk in. And uh, same way, even though she's the queen, she can't just by her own will walk into the courtroom. And, uh, but she had to make an appeal. She hadn't been invited to the courtroom for a while. And uh, after some, uh, some prayer, she takes the bold move of walking into the courtroom, and, uh, into the throne room, and literally she could have just been killed at a whim. Uh, the king could have said, uninvited, take off her head. And instead what happens? She goes in, uh, the scepter is, is extended to her, she's given grace in the eyes of King Ahasuerus, and uh, she invites them then to a feast. Uh, chapter 6, we have then this banquet of wine that happens at the end of 5, and, and uh, the king uh, comes to Esther's house, and she says, uh, if you would grant me my request, I want you to come back to dinner tomorrow. Now, I've read the book many times, and I've never understood why she did it in two phases. I don't know. You know, when he came that first time, she could have made her appeal. But for whatever reason, he comes, and she says, come back again tomorrow. I want to make a, an appeal to you. And uh, that's an important time because of what happens in chapter 6 in verses 1 and on. It says, on that night, so in between these two invited dinners that uh, the king would come to uh, Esther's, on that night could not the king sleep, and he commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles, and they were read before the king, and it was found written that Mordecai had told a big than and Tirish, two of the king's chamberlains, the keepers of the door, which sought to lay hand on the king of Ahasuerus, and the king said, What honor and dignity hath been done to Mordecai for this? Then saith the king's servants that ministered unto him, There is nothing done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? And I'm speaking to an audience, and I'm assuming a lot of you know this story, but as the time plays out and as this story unfolds, that's probably one of the most remarkable moments. So here the queen, as she's taken the move to invite the king to her home, she makes an appeal to come back, and in the intervening night, the king can't sleep. And in his inability to sleep, he asks him to bring the official government records, because no doubt about it, if anything was going to put him to sleep, the official records are going to put him to sleep. So they bring just a you know, record of some event that happened five years earlier. And it so happens it's the event where Mordecai essentially saves the king from assassination. And the king, hearing this story, says, well, that's interesting. Yeah, I kind of remember that. Hey, whatever happened to Mordecai? Did anybody do anything for this man when that happened? And you know the story, right? 
Um, the king wants to do something for Mordecai and asks Haman what to do. Haman comes up with this great plan, thinking it's going to honor him. In fact, Haman is having to honor the man he is endeavoring to kill. And uh, so the story goes. Um, in chapter three, uh, 7, you have the second, uh, the second appeal of the queen now uh, to uh, King Ahasuerus. And at this point, she makes an accusation against Haman. Now, Haman is number two in the land. He is the most powerful man in all of the land under King Ahasuerus. And here the queen, no offense, but she was a lady. And in this Persian culture, she had no real place in the authority structure. She might have been the queen, but she had no place of authority. And so for this woman to make an accusation against number two in the land was unheard of. She had no grounds to do it. She had no authority to do it. And so she literally puts her own life at risk again to make an accusation against Haman. Haman could have looked at her, though the queen. He could have said, your, uh, your majesty, take her life. And she would have been. But she makes an accusation against Haman. And in the providence of God, the king believes her. Okay, now honestly, do you think the king knew Haman? He probably had enough in his background to Haman that it wasn't surprising to him. Uh, but the king believes it. Uh, believes the story, and uh, then we have uh, him hanged by the same gallows uh, that were prepared uh, for um, Mordecai. Haman is hanged on those gallows. Chapter 8, um, verse 2, we have Haman uh, being killed. Mordecai is promoted. And then chapter 9, we have the, uh, the day that was supposed to be the day of the destruction of the nation turns into the day where the nation of Israel defends themselves against their enemies and rots, uh, a great deliverance is wrought by the hands of the people. And what should have been the worst day, the day of the destruction of Israel, turns into the day when God delivers the nation. All right. A little bit of history there, but it's the hand of God providentially seen all the way through. Now, again, looking across, across the crowd here, my assumption is a lot of you know there's an unusual feature in the book of Esther. And uh, at the risk of you saying it out loud, what is... Uh, why don't you just try? Why don't you say, what's the, what's the feature of the book of Esther that makes it very unique among all other books of the Bible? What do you think? What is it? What's unique about it? God's name is not mentioned, right? I figured you knew, right? It's very unique that God's name is not mentioned. And there's a lot of speculation as to why, and maybe we don't fully know why. But God chose in the writing of this book to not mention his name. And I could give some reasons why, uh, but all in the same, we don't know fully why, but that's definitely how the book is written. Perhaps the most striking thing about all of the evidence of God's providence is that God himself is never mentioned in the book of Esther. His providential hand and his sovereignty over the affairs of the world occur in almost every chapter, but his name never occurs even one time. In fact, the inspired writer of the book of Esther seems to go out of his way to avoid using the names of God. Like this, in chapter 4, uh, after the people find out about the decree that they're going to die, uh, it says, in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, When Mordecai perceived all that was done, Mordecai rent his clothes, put on sackcloth with ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and a bitter cry. And uh, what is he doing? Well, it doesn't say that he's talking to God, but the implication is he's praying. He's talking to Jehovah, Yahweh. 
praying, but it never mentions God's name. It just says he laments and puts on sackcloth with ashes. Chapter 4 and verse 14. Now this is kind of our key verse of the book. Uh, this is Mordecai speaking to Esther, and he says, For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. Who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such time as this? It's interesting, he describes it as the deliverance and the, the blessing and enlargement is like a thing in and of itself. Not that God will deliver or God will enlarge, but it'll just happen, almost in a happenstantial way. God's not mentioned there. Um, Esther's response to Mordecai, verse 16, it says, uh, she says to Mordecai, uh, go gather together all the Jews that are, in the, uh, that are present in Shushan and fast ye for me and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also, my maidens, will fast likewise and so will I go into the king. Again, she talks about fasting. She talks about her and her maidens fasting and she never says we're going to pray to Yahweh for deliverance. So again, it's curious. It's like the writer goes out of his way to avoid mentioning God. Later on, it talks about um, rejoicing, uh, about feasting, but it doesn't mention who they're rejoicing to, uh, whose name they're feasting in. It doesn't mention God's name. And even in chapter 8, it talks about many convert to becoming Jews, but it doesn't mention them converting to Yahweh. And again, just interesting, it doesn't mention God's name. And uh, I want you to look at chapter 9 and verse 24. Chapter 9, 24 says, Wherefore, so after all these events, uh, after the Jews have been delivered and Mordecai is now set up, verse 24, Wherefore they called these days Purim, after the name of Pur. Therefore, for all the words of, uh, therefore, for all the words of this letter and of that which they had seen concerning this matter and that which had come unto them, the Jews ordained and took upon them and upon their seed and upon such as joined themselves unto them, so as it should not fail that they would keep these two days according to their writing, according to their appointed time every year, and that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every providence, every city, that these days of Purim shall not fail from among the Jews, nor the memorial of them perish from their seed." And here's what I want to get, and then we're going to move on to just a point that I think we can hang on here for the day. Poor, poor is chance. And so it's the casting of poor by Haman. And I mentioned it was more in an occultic sort of a context. Haman was not looking for Yahweh to guide him. But it was in the casting of poor that seemed like a chance moment. God Almighty intersected that chance moment to prepare circumstances, to work out his plan in a remarkable way. And uh, the Jewish people, to this day, still celebrate annually the Feast of Purim. Did you know that? There is the Feast of Purim. It's celebrated every year. And uh, the Feast of Purim is a day to commemorate what happened in the book of Esther and to commemorate how the nation of Israel has been preserved since that day. So Purim is a celebration. To this day, the Jews celebrate the Feast of Purim as a recognition of the remarkable nature of the nation, uh, nation of Israel to survive to this day. And by and large, our Jewish friends celebrate Purim not as a sequence of miraculous deliverances, 
but more recognizing just how remarkable it is that they have survived by chance. Do you follow that? It's interesting. Somehow, through the trees, our Jewish friends missed the forest. That God is the only one that could have preserved them to this day. And somehow through that, they see it as poor. Just chance. Remarkable. What I want to do is I want to take just a quick minute. I want to talk through the main characters of the book, and I'm going to make a point, and it will be done. Uh, the book of Esther really has three or four main characters. kind of depends upon how you view Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is probably not, in my mind, uh, really a main character. He's more of like a kind of a necessary skeleton to the book. He's kind of part of what happens. It hangs on his kingship and what's happening through his life, but he's not really one of the main characters. I would say the main characters, in my opinion, would be Haman, Definitely a main character. God's teaching us something through Haman that we can hang on to uh, in our lives. Uh, definitely Mordecai is a, is a main character, though in the events of the story, he doesn't do a lot until the end. But he advises. He's clearly there. He's an important part of the story. Definitely a main character. Of course, when you think of the main characters, you think of Esther. The story is named after her. The events really follow what's happening in her life as she interacts with the king. Definitely a main character. Let me just give you three principles that follow each of these characters, and then I want to draw it together here. Uh, thinking about Haman, there's a principle that really follows Haman's life, and that would be this, that the hope of the anti-God tyrants of the world, that they might prosper, ultimately will fail, and God's people and cause will prosper. And, uh, you know, do you feel like anti-God tyrants are trying to work their will in our day? Yes or no? Every age there's been anti-God tyrants that try to work their will. And uh, there are Hamans in every generation. And, you know, in our day there are Hamans in that sense that are trying to destroy nation, the nation of Israel to this day. Is it remarkable how much of the world still despises Israel. Like the greatest threat. I remember once our guide held up a map of the Middle East, showed all the Arab nations that surround this little piece of territory, our little piece of, of um, geography uh, called Palestine or, or Israel, just this little you know, sliver of land, and surrounded by these Arab nations. And how those Arab nations view Israel as their greatest threat. Just look at it on a map, you think, how can they be a threat? There's not even that many people there considering all the other nations around. Uh, there are forces like Haman back in that day that are trying to destroy uh, the nation of Israel. But maybe more to our point here, do you feel it? There are forces today that if they had their will in their way, they would destroy you. You feel it? In fact, there are policies that seem to always come up, always try to get enacted, that would literally try and do away with what we're doing right now. Meeting in the name of Jesus Christ. So they'll mischaracterize us as haters, bigots, um, that, that we don't love, that we're not accepting, all because we're just trying to be true to the word of God. And there are people to this day, like Haman, that would destroy us. But this book shows us, and history proves to us, that though the forces of anti-God would seek to overthrow us, ultimately, God's people and cause will prosper. 
I think of Matthew 16, uh, 16 18, you, know, you might know this verse. Um, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. And uh, the history of God's church over the last 2,000 years is story after story of the church advancing when the enemies were trying to snuff it out. Um, actually, in, uh, when, when uh, Chairman Mao uh, became the dictator of China in uh, 49, uh, there was, I think, 700,000 Christians in China. And uh, there was an active move to try and literally take down Christianity out of China. Do you know right now China, if, if I understand correctly, has the most Christians in their population than any other nation in the world? It's amazing. And some of those same forces are still at work in China. And in all the effort of the Chinese Communist people, uh, not the whole nation, but the, the Communist Party, to try and uh, get rid of Christianity, it's flourished in China in an underground way. Country after country has stories similar to that. You know Pakistan right now has a great move of God happening? You don't hear about it in the news. But God's moving. God's moving in Iran in remarkable ways. God is working. So even though forces try and put down, and so the Haman principle is this, even though anti-God tyrants are trying to, uh, uh, to get rid of Christianity, uh, the plan of God's people and God's plan will prosper. But I want to focus on, on Mordecai for just a quick minute. Mordecai is an interesting character in this book because Mordecai actually is, um, he is the man that ends up, he has authority, gains greater authority. He's definitely seen as a wise counselor. And uh, Mordecai's counsel to Esther is not really any more complicated than this. Mordecai recognized that there were things happening in God's plan or among the people of God that God was going to work out. And Mordecai's counsel to Esther is not, Esther, work it out. Mordecai's counsel to Esther is, Esther, get involved in what God's doing. Do you see the difference? It's, it can seem in the story that Mordecai's counseling Esther how to make God's plan work. That's not what he's doing. He's recognizing God's going to work. Esther, this is your chance. Step into it. And uh, the Mordecai principle is really this. God doesn't need me to fulfill his purposes, but he invites me to be a part of the fulfilling of his purposes. And you know right now, when you think about 2023, you think about your life, think about what God's doing in your life, you know God's working in your life in remarkable ways. He's working in your life, he's working around your life. And God's invitation to you this morning, just like Mordecai is, step into it. Don't just be an observer, step into it. But I'm going to talk about Esther here briefly. The Esther principle is this. God can use us even if we have nothing more than a willingness to be obedient in the place where God has put you. So let's look at chapter 4. This is a verse that probably a lot of you have memorized, but I've already read it. I just want to focus again on verse 14. <clears throat> Mordecai says to Esther, For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place, but thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? I can say beyond a shadow of any doubt, you have come to 2023 on purpose. And God has a plan for this new year that involves you on purpose. And uh, you could either step into that plan or you could try and step out of it but God's plan's going to happen, and he means to use you in that plan. And do you know what's interesting about the story of Esther? As you think about it, you know, though Esther was the queen, and she had maybe different access and opportunity, she didn't really have anything. It's not like she had 
political strings to pull. She was, she, she was really nothing. All she did is went into the king and said, um, Haman's trying to kill my people. Would you deal with it? That's it. That's all she did. Esther didn't have, didn't have much of anything other than the opportunity to step into a moment God had prepared and be used of God. And uh, so you might think about this upcoming year and think, I don't got a whole lot of anything to offer. But you've got one thing going for you, and that is God's doing something in this year, and he's inviting you to be a part of it. Step into it. You don't have to come to 2023 and present to God the great things you've got. You need to come to 2023 and say, God, you got me. However you want to use me. You're doing something in this day, and I have no doubt I've come to this day for such a time as this. And I cannot tell you what's going to happen in 2023. I don't know. What's God going to do in your life this year? I don't know. And the truth is, you don't either. But I can say beyond a shadow of a doubt, God's doing something God-like in your life. And he just wants you to step into it. You don't have to present anything. Just step into it. Do you know, as you read the book of Esther, and just like any story, you identify with the characters. You know, maybe as you're reading the book, hopefully you don't identify with Haman. Um, but maybe in some ways you identify with Mordecai, you identify with Esther. Um, it's easy to read a story and who's the protagonist, who's the antagonist, how does the plot develop, what's the climax, and, and you kind of read yourself into the story a little bit. That's why reading is it's, it's helpful, it's interesting. You learn because you identify with the main characters. So let me ask you a question. Who is the hero in the book of Esther? Well, it's not Haman, obviously. He's the villain. In a, in, in a certain sense, it's not really Mordecai either. Though Mordecai definitely is shown through the book to be an important character. He's definitely a, a significant character. At the end becomes second in command. You know, he's a very important man. But in a very real sense, es uh, Mordecai is not the hero. And if you think about it, actually Esther herself isn't the hero either. Just because the book is named after her doesn't make her the hero. All right, I don't want to pick on these people. I wasn't there. I didn't have to deal with their situation. But think about that whole situation. Mordecai is presented with this, I don't know if it's an opportunity or mandate, I'm not sure, for Esther to be a part of this potential to become the next queen. And uh, read the story. What did she have to do to become a part of this potential of becoming the queen? Well, it was impure. At a very minimum, he was a, uh, a pagan man, and she was a Jewish woman. And God was very clear. There should be no intermarriage between the Jews and the foreign nations. So even if it was all up and up and pure, which it wasn't, there should have never been an intermarriage between those two. But the whole situation is actually surrounded by a very immoral scenario. She enters into the harem of the king, one of many women. She just happens to get the chief position after spending a night with him. And uh, I want you to think a little bit about it, to be honest with you. If somebody came knocking on my door and said, uh, edict of the United States government, uh, we're looking to see who could be the next queen of uh, King Biden, or whatever. Um, and uh, here's how it's going to go. Uh, you know, we just need one of your daughters to come. We're going to be in this contest here. And it's, you know, it involves such and such. I'll be honest with you. I'll be honest with you. I'm not trying to be a tough guy. That whole proposition's going nowhere. No, no, no. You don't have a choice. Your daughter's got to come. Oh, yeah, I have a choice. She's not coming. 
Well, no, it's, it's uh, the government says so. It doesn't matter, over my dead body. Uh, the fact that Mordecai even allowed his adopted daughter, right, she was raised in his home, to be a part of this, you think, really? Why did he do that? The fact that she did it. What do you think Esther could have done? She could have gone, sorry, not doing it. In the same time frame of the nation of Israel, we have Daniel at one point saying, not going to eat it. We have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego saying, not bowing down. Esther could have done the same thing. Well, but Esther, they would have killed you. So what? I'm not doing it. But she did do it. Mordecai ushered her into it, and she did it herself. So there's moral complication to their lives. And you've already gotten the answer. Do you know the hero of the book of Esther is God? And the irony of it is he's not even mentioned, but he's clearly seen through the whole book. And uh, you know God's not overly burdened about his name getting injected in the story because he knows he's in control. Uh, God's name's not in here. There's probably reasons for it. But the fact he's not named, it's almost like the silence is deafening. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever read the book of Esther and felt like, oh God, I just want you to mention yourself because you're so obvious. But he doesn't because God's not burned about getting his name in. And you know the reality is, uh, folks, God's not overly burdened in this setting that he's mentioned because he knows he's in control. But in a lot of different turns and twists in life, for some reason, I'm burdened to get my name in. I, I, I want people to recognize how important I was. Um, when I think about my life story, there are some main characters in my life story, like my mother. I mentioned this in the, uh, the men's uh, Bible study this morning. My mother is the one who led me to faith in Christ when I was four years old. Do you know, you can't tell, for a lot of reasons, you can't tell my story without talking about my mom. Like, the story begins with my mom. So it's like an important part of my story. You can't tell my story without talking about my mom. But, you know, I would, I would submit to you, my mom's not the hero of my story. Uh, growing up, I had a, a youth pastor that was very, uh, very important in my life, Jerry Frank. And I made some key decisions all through high school. And Jerry Frank was, was one of those main characters in my life. But when I look back at my life, if you could look at my life, Jerry Frank's not the hero of my, of my story. Uh, when I was in college, uh, Brian Tannis was a key mentor in my life when I was at Bible college. And uh, God used him in my life. But you know what? Brian Tannis, he might be a main character, but he's not the hero. And uh, for 22 years, I've been at Falls Baptist Church serving on staff. Wayne Van Gelder has been my pastor. It'd be hard to tell my life story without talking about Wayne Van Gelder. But he's not the hero of my story. And do you know when I think about my life and I think about the chance moments in my life that have made my life what it is, there's not a name behind it. It's God behind it. And here we are starting a new year, and I want to challenge you with this in two ways. Number one, be willing to recognize and depend upon the fact God's doing a big thing in your life. Step into it because the hero of your life is God himself. Think about your past. Getting you to where you are today, you could do the same thing I did. You could name big characters in your life that were a part of your story, but the hero is God himself. And so I want to leave you with this challenge, and I'm done. All of us do tend to want to be the hero in the story ourselves. And uh, you can't be your own hero, not in this story. God's the hero. But you can find yourself even wanting to be the hero, you wanting to be the hero in somebody else's story. 
I've discipled lots of people. I'm discipling people. And it's easy for me to feel like, oh, I want to be the hero in their story. I want to be the reason that they're taking big steps for God. I want to be the reason that they're making good decisions. And you know the honest truth is I've had to determine as a disciple maker that I'm just a character. I'm not the hero. And I want to encourage us here as we think about a new year. Of course, we've talked a lot about our lives as being the ones to recognize God's working, step into it, be a willing volunteer. But I want to encourage you with this. God's the hero of your life and is the hero of the life or lives he wants to put you directly involved in. Let him be the hero. Because if you let yourself be a character in the story and let God be the hero of the story, you'll probably find your disciples or your children or the people you're working with take greater steps forward than if you try and be the hero for them. I remember years ago I was discipling Pat, and I say years ago because Pat, unfortunately, uh, is, he's, he's wayward at this point. I tried working with Pat. Pat had some trouble, some trouble with um, prescription medication and probably even illegal uh, drugs. And uh, one day I, I was awoken in the middle of the night. I was feeling sick, and my thoughts went to Pat. And uh, so I, I started praying for Pat. I said, God, I have been trying to work with Pat for the last couple of years, and I feel like we're making no progress. And I prayed this prayer. I said, God, I've tried to disciple Pat, and I'm not doing a very good job. You disciple him. And after I prayed that prayer, and I was feeling pretty lousy, was up because I couldn't sleep. After I prayed that prayer, God, you disciple him. I fell asleep. Found out a couple days later, probably maybe a day or two later, that at the very time of that prayer, like to the, to the moment, at the very time of that prayer, my friend Pat was in a car accident because of, he was not of sober mind, and because he had an illegal firearm in the car, he ended up going to, to jail for a while. And God used that accident at that time, and I'm sure God's still working in Pat's life, but at that time, to humble him, let me back into his life so I could keep working with him. And when I think about that story, it was when I said to God, God, I've tried. I'm not doing a good job. You disciple him. And boom, God began to work. And I hope that this year you're going to have opportunity to work with people. And I want to challenge you this way. The hero of your disciple, the hero of your child, the hero of the person that God wants you to work with is never going to be you. And if you try and make yourself the hero, you're going to actually get in the way of God doing his thing in that life. Step back. Be a willing participant. God, you want me to go in? I'll do it. But God, you do it. I'm trusting you. You be the hero of the story of that life. And yourself, let God be the hero in your life. All right, let's pray about it. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we uh, think about the year ahead and think about your plan uh, being worked out in our lives. Lord, I pray that we would, in just the very simple faith, we would just depend upon you to be the hero of our story. And uh, you're going to call us to do things in the middle of great things you're doing, but all you need us to do is just be willing participants. We don't have to make it happen. We just need to present ourselves, and you're doing it. And so, Lord, I pray for every, um, everyone in this room that we would take seriously your plan in our lives, let you be the hero, and just make ourselves willing. But I think especially today of uh, the desire we have to uh, affect lives around us, those that you're leading us to, to disciple, to, uh, to mentor, and how it is easy for us to want to be the hero in their story. And Lord, we just want to lift our hands to heaven and say, I can't be the hero, you're the hero. 
And I pray that we would today trust you to be the hero in our lives and trust you to be the hero in the lives that we're working in. I'm going to ask you to, to, to consider that for a moment. Your heads are bowed and uh, you're in contemplative prayer. Uh, maybe perhaps the Lord's working in your heart today about him being the hero and you just stepping into the plan that he has for your year ahead. And if God's working in your heart about you just letting him be the hero, you stepping in, why don't you just acknowledge that by an uplifted hand. We'll give you a moment, an uh, opportunity, a moment to respond if God's working your heart. Good. I see hands across the room. Praise the Lord. That's good. I think we all identify with that. We all identify with that. And uh, also burden on another vein uh, that um, maybe God's working in your heart about how you're working with those that God's led you to, a, a child, a disciple. And you want to acknowledge by the uplifted hand, God, I'm going to let you be the hero in their life, not me. If God's working your heart that way too, good, good. Praise the Lord. Uh, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would uh, lead here in this time of invitation. And we're going to do business with you. And we believe that the step of faith to be taken is to simply yield in our hearts to your working, uh, stepping into it, letting you do it around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name.